Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. And I'm very pleased to be joined today by Brandon Katz, the entertainment industry strategist at Parrot Analytics, uh, who is here to talk about their new report on uh, the the new Parrot Perspective, uh, which is a really fascinating document. I'm going to link to it in the email. I recommend you check it out if you want to know what the state of play is in the world of streaming. Uh, it's very, it's it, look, this is what gets me up every day. <laughs> So we're we're going to talk about it. Uh, Brandon, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And you know, I wasn't fishing for compliments right there, but I like what I caught, Sonny. I appreciate it. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's good to have you on. Um, so I want to I start this uh, show with, with a, a quick anecdote. I have long been, for years, I, I've written in publications as varied as the Weekly Standard and the Washington Post about how much I hate cord cutting and how terrible I think it is and how the... Uh, the industry is shooting itself in the foot and how consumers who argued for unbundling were basically creating a situation where we're all going to pay more for less uh, options, fewer options. And uh, as it happens this month, I am becoming a cord cutter myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting rid of the spectrum cable, internet, phone package. I have a landline that I've literally never used. I don't even own a land. I don't even know where I would plug in a landline. I don't, I don't know where, how that would work. Uh, but I'm getting rid of all that. Uh, I'm switching to AT&T Fiber. This is not an advertisement for AT&T Fiber, <laughs> by the way. I just want to, but I, but it's, it's, you know, I'm like, I'm finally doing it. And I'm doing it because I, I just sat down and looked at my bills and I was like, well, I'm paying 200 bucks a month for Spectrum. I barely use cable anymore. I watch, I watch almost none of these channels. I watch everything via streaming. I'm still paying for all the streamers. I don't understand what I'm doing here. Uh, so I am joining I am joining the ranks of the folks who are, uh, uh, you know, gutting the cable industry. Sorry to all my friends in cable land out there. Um, and I am not alone. Obviously, this is the big story of the last five years. Before we get into the report, let's just talk a little bit about how that uh, has shifted, because this is actually the start of the report. The start is like Netflix once upon a time is like, we're not encouraging cord cutting. That's not <laughs> a thing. Where we exist in in tandem with cable, and now they're like, yes, linear TV is dead. We reign on the ashes. Uh, and But they're not alone, obviously. Yeah, I mean, to paraphrase Emperor Palpatine, now that you're making the transition, let the stream flow through you, Sonny. <laughs> Welcome to the dark side. <clears throat> obviously, with the clunky cable bundle, and this, this point has been talked to death long before uh, uh, I ever joined this podcast today. But with the, you know, overexpensive, bloated bundle, consumers were frustrated that they weren't getting the exact things that they wanted. They were paying for uh, extraneous channels and networks that they never used. And much like we're finding out in streaming, a very small collection of titles drove the majority of viewership and usage. And so I understand the the desire for debundling. I have been a cord cutter uh, almost uh, nine years now, which is, is scary to think about. Uh, we like that kind of on-demand option. We like, as consumers, having control and convenience. But as you noted, it has now created a precarious entertainment ecosystem in which 
the things that, you know, like you said, Netflix was saying up front in 2015, 2016, we are complementary to cable. We work with them. We, we take their hits and we give them a, a longer digital shelf life to now, oh no, we want to drive you into the ground and so to the point where you have no other choice but to license to us. And we are still the dominant home screen when you turn on your TV and we are the first option you choose for your entertainment media experience. So we are at such a, a unique time because after you know nearly a, a decade or so of unbundling, we are now suddenly entering a period of rebundling to a certain degree, but it's just various streaming services and various services uh, outside of entertainment that I'm sure we'll touch on in this conversation. So long story short, it's a very funny transitional time to, to be an entertainment consumer as we more or less are looking at a near future where we recreate the pay TV bundle just over the internet. Well, I mean, and it's, it's fascinating too, because, uh, I, I am, I have long been of the opinion, um, that the, uh, the, the reason that the basic cable portion of the golden age of television took off was because it occurred, uh, at the same time as TiVo, more or less TiVo and the rise of DVRs. Right. So it wasn't just that shows on FX were great. It was that you could start recording them, start watching the show 15 minutes in, and then fast forward through all the commercials because people did not love commercials. I don't love commercials, but it seems like uh, all of the streamers, which had were all at one point, with the exception, I think, of Peacock initially, um, were all essentially founded on advertising free um, promises uh, are now shifting to an advertising heavy model. Um, and I, I do wonder if that is going to change how consumers look at uh, what they want to watch and where they want to watch it and what they're paying for and how many services they're paying for. You know, Hulu started as completely ad supported. We're looking at Amazon, I think later this month, changing everybody's plans to ad supported in which you actually have to opt out and pay $3 more to ad free. And the early estimates are is that this is probably going to be the most successful quote unquote conversion to ad supported streaming out of all the major streamers. And I think as you know, your Netflixes, your Maxes, and your Disney Pluses focus on converting even more users to ad supported television, you're going to see their ad free prices continue to increase after what was a large amount of increases over the last 12, 16 months. I think it is interesting. I think Amazon's actually well suited because their programming strategy really relies for the most part, on a lot of serialized, serialized procedurals, as I like to call them. You know, your, your Goliaths, your Boths, your Reachers, your, your Jack Ryans, they are taking kind of the CBS model and just modernizing it a little bit. That, I think, is well-suited to TV advertisement viewing. Obviously, Thursday Night Football is a huge, huge draw for them. That, obviously, is going to have uh, a ton of advertisements every week. I think, you know, Peter Chernin had had a great quote that said, basically, the entire world of entertainment is heading towards the two opposite ends of the spectrum, where there's blockbuster content and there's niche content. And I think both in the right delivery mechanism lend themselves to ad supported. Now, it's a little bit harder, of course, for some blockbuster things. But if we consider NFL football blockbuster entertainment, which I very much do, and I think any list of most watched broadcasts would, would support then you see the the side door entryways into, again, like I said up top, recreating the pay TV model just over the internet with familiar programming lanes and figuring out how to tweak 
what has become a heavy focus on serialized television. Like you said, FX has great pro uh, programming. You know, the rise of TiVo, DVR, and I would say DVD box sets allowed for serialized programming to take off in a way that it never could before the late 90s, early 2000s. And I think we'll see that shift a little bit back to that kind of early 2000s model, but still be a, an intense focus. But everyone right now seems to be racing towards the middle. You know, they want to be as broad appeal as possible. Netflix, uh, I even say this in the Parrot Perspective report, Netflix started off saying that they wanted to be HBO before HBO wants to be them. And now they're basically, again, CBS, they're gourmet cheeseburgers, elevated middle brow fare. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think this kind of golden age of peak TV uh, that we've so enjoyed over the last 10 years is very much coming to a quick and rapid halt. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. I mean, Netflix is is the best position to continue that because, you know, they, they have they have such an enormous pool of money that they can throw $80 million at a maestro and $160 million at a rebel moon. And they are going for two different segments of the market. You know, I, I like it's 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 fascinating um, to kind of look at what they're doing. And I, I sometimes get I have friends who yell at me for being anti Netflix uh, too too much. And I am not anti Netflix, but I am um, I am. I, I dislike some of the things they do, particularly with regard to theatrical. That's neither here nor there. Uh, the the in the in the report, uh, one of the things um, that you you hit on early is this idea that there is not going to be a single winner of the streaming wars. This was you know a lot of the the valuation of Netflix for a long time was premised on it's going to be the last man standing in the streaming wars, and it has maintained much of that valuation despite the fact that I think now everybody realizes that, okay, it's just going to be the biggest, most consistent part of everybody's streaming bundle. Yeah, I think, you know, as a culture, we are so binary. You know, let's, let's take it to the gladiators of old all through sports today. We like single victors. That is how our, our brains and our culture tend to work. But that's often just not the case in reality. You know, Netflix is the, I think this really comes down to also the various differing goals within the streaming industry and the, the major premium rivals. You know, Netflix is the only pure play streaming service among the eight major premium SVOD services. Everyone else is either a legacy media company that has other divisions that generate revenue, you know, like Disney subsidizing their streaming efforts with parks revenue, or they're a big tech company in which streaming is not the primary business. So now, just because streaming is not Amazon, Google, and Apple's primary business, that doesn't mean that they are all going to light billions of dollars on fire every single year as a loss leader on an endless timeline for streaming. But if these companies deem that these services are providing added value, they are providing potential conversion pathways and necessary framework for other current and future ambitions, then their runways are likely longer than a traditional entertainment streamer. Uh, you know, we we saw from reports from Antenna that churn rates are up in 2023 across the spectrum, and it suggests that kind of premium entertainment libraries may, may not be a cost-effective asset on their own to maintain consumer interest long-term. I think that's one reason why you're seeing a couple different bundles, a couple different kind of rival companies potentially uh, uh, discussing partnership opportunities such as Paramount Plus and, and Apple TV Plus. 
And at the end of the day, when you look at the differing goals, when you look at the mounting competition, when you look at supply and demand inefficiencies in terms of specific programming lanes, and you look at the ability of Netflix rivals to address consumer needs as good or even better uh, than Netflix, you see a situation in which there are going to be multiple victors. None of that is to say that Netflix isn't obviously the undisputed streaming champion. You know, right now they are the the Golden State Warriors and the New England Patriots dynasty champions of the industry. But that doesn't mean others can't win as well. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is kind of a an interesting point. Uh, you the, the the report is full of uh, lovely graphs. By the way, if you are a data viz person, you will enjoy. Uh, checking it out. Um, Shout to, out to, to our design team who will love hearing that and who deserve all the praise. <laughs> but it's it, so there's the what one of the first charts is um is about total uh movie and series demand shares. And I, I I'm fascinated by this chart because it uh it gets at a point that I think about a lot with the streaming wars, which is the split between movie demand and series demand. I have always thought it makes a lot of sense for Netflix to spend $100 million on a 10 to 12 hour TV series, season of television that lasts 10 to 12 hours. It makes almost no sense for them to spend $100 million on a two hour movie because the same amount of money is being spent on something that will, you know, if their if their goal is to capture eyeballs for numbers of hours, right, the television series makes more sense because it lasts longer. Um, and that kind of bears out in this chart, more or less, right? I mean, I most of most of the streaming services get more of their demand from TV than from movies. The the uh, exceptions being, I think, uh, what was it? It was Prime Video, and interestingly, Disney Plus, which I was I was kind of surprised by. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. You know, if you're spending that sort of money on a uh, a movie, I tend to believe, okay, you're going to need to have some theatrical component in order to kind of hone in on a reasonable ROI, even as you invest in certain loss leader angles. I, I get that. But, you know, Netflix still has significant movie demand, you know, between their originals and their licensed titles, but they have the largest gap between movie demand and TV series demand of any streamer, which does speak to that gulf, which does speak to also the susceptibility of being like, okay, hey, we have originals that don't necessarily generate a ton of ROI. And then we have licensed titles that may or may not be able to be reliably counted on for the short and long term. We know that as every other streaming service claws their way towards profitability, that eventual accomplishment may change strategies. And even as the licensing market is reopening after years of consolidation in-house, there is a potential change on the horizon. Let's say... Disney Plus or Max hypothetically reaches consistent profitability in the next year and a half. Will they want to continue licensing to Netflix and to, you know, paraphrase Bob Iger, he, he said, obviously, it is like uh, selling nuclear weapons to a, a third world country that's going to use them against you. And even though Bob Iger is then a 180 and they're uh, now net, uh, licensing, I believe, 14 titles to Netflix, how long does that strategy last and how, how can you rely on that? And does that not leave you vulnerable to massive price increases? Remember, to keep Friends on for one more season before HBO Max launched, the price went up to $100 million for just one additional year. I mean, that is, even for the engagement it generates, that is a very concerning trend. So it, it is interesting to look at. When you look at total catalog demand, which, as you mentioned, uh, 
it accounts for both original and licensed movies and TV shows. That uh, Netflix's share in the U.S. as of Q3 actually fell almost a full percentage point compared to Q3 in 2022. And if you combine Disney Plus and Hulu into a single app, which is going to go wide later this year, they actually account for the largest share of any streaming service at 24.4%, while Netflix sits at 17.3%. Uh, if we switch over and we look at kind of Nielsen's The Gauge, which measures monthly U.S. TV screen time, Netflix's share in September of 2022 was 7.3%, and its share in November of 23 was 7.4%. So a very negligible increase. And then if we zoom out one more time, Netflix's share of global demand for streaming originals has decreased 20% since Q3 2020 as competition is mounted industry-wide. So all of this is a dense and numbers-heavy way, uh, numbers way of saying that the trend lines of viewership and demand don't really support the idea that only one company can win. We also haven't even gotten into subscriber growth, where some believe Netflix is likely to plateau again this year after its password sharing crackdown reaches saturation. So if there's only supposed to be one winner, only one company left standing, then logic would dictate that that company is hoovering up the vast majority of, of revenue, of viewership, of demand, and subscribers on a consistent basis. And that's just not what we see, even though Netflix is a market leader. And then just also baseline, as we've seen across most, not all, but most consumer-facing industries, they usually support two to three to four major players in the same space. I think it's reasonable to assume a similar eventual turnout for the streaming industry. Yeah. No, I, I it's it's fascinating. I one thing can we do, I, I want to take one step back here and just talk a little bit about Parrot Analytics and how you guys determine demand viewer yes. viewership demand because it's an interesting it's an interesting stat it's it's kind of unique to you guys when you're when you're looking at this what what are you actually measuring yeah very important question so essentially sunny let's say uh I, I get a screener for something and i'm like wow this is great i'm gonna recommend it to you buddy you gotta check this out the first thing you might do is google that title and then you might go to wikipedia or imdb to learn more about it then you might watch a trailer on YouTube. Then you might watch the actual thing itself. And then you might talk about it on social media. We track every single one of those interactions because we feel it better reflects how the modern consumer is engaging with content in today's kind of digital multifaceted ecosystem. And listen, hey, there, there's no replacement for just raw viewership. That's always going to be the most important. And we weight raw viewership the most important. We weight social media the, the least important because... At the end of the day, it's not necessarily the highest ask of a consumer just to go tweet about something or, or what have you. But when you combine all those data points, and, and we're bringing in you know, 500 million peer-to-peer -peer file download uh, data points a month, we're bringing in 2 billion signals per month over the, that entire ecosystem, we feel it provides this kind of 360-degree view of a show's you know, fandom and impact. And I think it particularly helps with highlighting shows that may be punching above their weight, yet flying a little bit under the radar. And so when, when you zoom out and you take it from that perspective, it's just a all-encompassing, holistic look at a show's performance. And I think in the streaming era, as great as raw viewership is, it isn't the only metric of success, particularly if we want to draw it back to the various differing goals that we talked about a little bit earlier of these different streaming companies. Well, I, so let's let's talk about how these uh, 
these these two uh, formats, movies and TV, and also how demand um, uh, help shape what the streamers really care about here, which are a acquiring new subs and b holding on to old subs. You know, reducing churn. How when you're looking at the when you're looking at the data, what uh, are the most important factors for getting somebody to sign up for a service and then b stopping them from leaving that service? A really important question. I think a lot of people have covered this well over the last, you know, five to eight years. We know that generally speaking, exclusive new breakout broad appeal shows, your Stranger Things is, your Mandalorians, you know, your The Boys is, those are the best at driving new subscription growth. Whereas library titles, you know, your your suits, your friends, your office, your NCIS and criminal minds, those are really good for retention and engagement. And, you know, retention and engagement are quite attractive to advertisers. And as we pointed out, that's becoming an increasingly important element of streaming. Uh, I think it's not an accident that you've seen pretty much every other streaming service besides Netflix pull back from streaming exclusive exclusive films of mid to larger size budgets. I think there's always going to be a place for those smaller budgeted movies. Obviously, uh, streaming has kind of become the major pipeline for independent cinema in a lot of ways, and those are usually smaller, more niche uh, 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 projects. But generally speaking, no one besides Netflix is investing in SVOD-exclusive big-budget films at the moment. They are trying to attach theatrical components. And as we've seen across the data as well, you know, from various data sources, ours, Nielsen's, others, a theatrical release typically leads to as good or even better streaming viewership than SVOD exclusive. So I think that's a really important reality that most major players have, uh, you know, learned and adopted. Yeah, I mean, just today, I think news came that Apple TV Plus is finally going to be uh, debuting Killers of the Flower Moon. Which, of course, had been kind of pitched as like, it's Martin Scorsese, it's going to be on Apple TV+. Plus. But first it's going to be in theaters, and then it had a VOD window, which I don't think everyone was expecting. And now it's it's heading to streaming, which I can only imagine will increase uh, the viewership there. And, and by after. the way, sorry, just to quickly interject, I, I love that because with the streaming revolution... Everyone totally, totally eschewed windows and windowing is great because it gives you multiple monetization opportunities. So the fact that even though Killers of the Flower Moon didn't necessarily kill it in theaters at the box office, I love that they had a big, huge worldwide global marketing push for a theatrical release, then VOD to, to generate some secondary income. And then ideally in the, in the minds of Apple, I'm sure, driving new subscriptions and retention uh, on Apple TV Plus when it finally arrives there for quote unquote free to subscribers. So I love that they are re readopting windowing. Well, and, and also, I mean, look, it, it um, you know, it is a it is essentially found money for for Paramount and and I think to a lesser extent Apple because Again, this was originally kind of talked about. This and Napoleon were talked about. Like these are going to be, we're just going to put these on the service and it'll be fine. And everyone's like, no, don't do that. That's, that's <laughs> foolish. Um. Uh. So let's uh let's let's talk a little bit about the different goals that the streaming services have here because I think you know if you look at Netflix, Netflix is a global, you know, player. They are they are trying to be everywhere. Uh. You know, with some some exceptions like China or, or whatever. But they are trying to be everywhere. 
Uh, and others are pulling back from that a little bit. I mean, you note that uh, Disney got rid of their Indian cricket package, which in turn is leading them to consider offloading Hotstar entirely, uh, which would suggest a retrenchment to more domestic or, or Western audiences. What are the, what are the streamers uh, looking at in terms of where they want to be and what they want to be providing? Yeah, and sticking with that global theme for a second, we know infamously or famously, depending on what side of the line you, you sit on, uh, Max pulled back and stopped uh, operation and production in several European territories. We know Paramount Plus and Peacock uh, kind of have combined for that Sky Showtime joint venture in a lot of different European markets. Amazon's global, Netflix is global, Apple TV Plus, I think, hopes to be global, but doesn't nearly have the scale right now. And everyone else seems to be reassessing where they want to be, how they want to spend that capital, and what is the best way to scale up to international uh, audiences. Uh, it's very tricky because we've seen that you know local language programming is really important for that international scale, and yet it's very hard for uh, foreign language titles to permeate the American market to the extent of hit status. You know, everyone said. Squid Game is going to usher in this big change. I, I was guilty of it as well. And even though non-English titles have, uh, demand for non-English titles in America has risen considerably over the last four years, we have yet to see a hit on the scale of Squid Game. And we probably won't uh, anytime soon. The thing is, then why that's so important is because traditionally speaking, production outside of America is cheaper than entertainment production within America. So it suddenly becomes about uh, efficiency of resource allocation for uh, a, a major global streamer like Netflix as they are, are dealing, or they're essentially saturated in growth in the American market. The UCAN market is the most competitive. It's got the highest average revenue per user, but it's for the most part tapped out, which means you know 70% of their quarterly ads uh, quarterly ed subscriber editions are coming from international markets. They have, a f they have to figure out a balance between continuing that growth and getting that content to appeal to American audiences, which is very, very difficult. And at the same time, there's no doubt that uh, it's the one-stop shop is, is really important for Netflix. It's, it's a great advantage. They're, they're massive library. And I've always, but I, at the same time, it's also a weakness from a certain perspective. I've always kind of likened it to Samson's hair in Greek mythology. Uh, yes, it makes it a true global uh, four quadrant service. There's something for everyone. But unsurprisingly, it does have adverse effects on quality control. And Netflix actually has the lowest average per title demand of the eight major streamers. We know that entertainment has always been a hits-driven business, and the majority of Netflix's audience demand is, is going to be drawn to those hits, as it is for all these streamers. But the, the reality is that Netflix, due to its library size and that approach and its kind of global ambitions, it actually the, the majority of its audience demand is actually concentrated among a smaller collection of titles than other streamers. So it's not as evenly balanced. It's more top-heavy. And when you ha are shelling out $17 billion roughly annually on content, you would like to see a more even distribution of demand across your library. This is not some sort of anti-Netflix stance. It's something that all streamers deal with. But because they've chosen to be the, the Walmart of streaming, it is a problem they're going to consistently deal with, as opposed to you know Disney+, Plus, which 
has a much smaller library. And yes, Marvel and Star Wars and Pixar deal with the majority of, of generate the majority of demand, but they have a more even distribution across that because they aren't throwing as much at the wall to see what sticks. I know that was a long-winded rant, so well, no, I'm no. bringing that to a close. No, no, it's it's good because I, I, I think I think about a lot with the streamers is how they um, identify themselves within, yes. within the market. And Net- Netflix, obviously, is the biggest player. They are trying to appeal to everyone. Uh, and doing a fairly good job of it. I mean, uh, you know, the 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 success of Coco Melon uh, on Netflix cannot be underappreciated. But you know, everyone thinks of Disney as the the place for families, the place for for kids. And I think Disney sees themselves that way to a certain extent. Which you know, we can we can discuss a little bit how the Hulu merger is going to to shift that perspective and and change it a little bit. Um, but also, like yeah, Prime Video is is I think the perfect example of a service that doesn't that I think strains against what it naturally is. Uh, and, and what I often say to people is that Prime Video is the the dad network. It is the, <laughs> it's the place where you go for Reacher or Jack Ryan, football. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, your colleague, Julia Alexander, wrote in, Pup, in Puck this week that they're looking at picking up a bunch of regional sports networks and, and going to bring some of that to, to the service. And I find, I find all of this, like all of this makes sense uh, in a in in again under a broad umbrella that I think of as like dad TV, and it, I get the sense also that they don't want to be seen that way. That they want to be more like Netflix, more like a service for everyone, um, with some prestige stuff and some uh, global global you know global aspirations and all that. Uh, how do how do the streamers think of themselves as brands appealing to certain? groups or or audiences brand perception in any industry is so important to a consumer's perception of value of whatever that service or product is you bring up such a good point you know amazon's original programming strategy for years has been somewhat unclear i would say to to analysts such as us to to i think the everyday consumer and what a a streaming company necessarily wants to be known as and what they are known as, there is often a a divide unless you're really committing significant resources to it. So for example, Apple TV Plus wants to be associated with premium programming that really reflects that kind of, I don't want to say squeaky clean Apple brand, but Apple brand is known as kind of an elevated product. And that's what they want for their TV and film. Listen, there, there's nothing wrong with that. That is great. HBO has made a massively successful and, and lucrative track record off of that. But when you're talking about being a global service that appeals to four quadrants of consumers and is adopted at scale in the market, you're going to need more middlebrow programming. And I think their reluctance to dive into that lane is putting a ceiling on their subscription growth. And that's an example of where, you know, brand perception and brand ambition internally clashes with market realities. I think, or if we look at kind of uh, rewind the clock and look at Disney Plus and Hulu, I think initially Disney, when it was announcing plans to roll out Hulu internationally, they thought Hulu would be their generalist service. And they thought Disney Plus would be their specialist service because of its family focus, a family franchise focus. It's very, you know, uh, significant emphasis on franchise brands. But then in the first day, Disney Plus added 10 million subscribers. I think it was 25 million in, in the first month. And the growth 
completely overshot even the most optimistic internal expectations. And that caused, along with, you know, cost with Comcast and everything and a lot of other outside factors, that caused them to, I think, reverse uh, uh, their track and basically say, okay, we're going to make Disney Plus our quote-unquote generalist global service to a degree, and Hulu will be more niche, even though it's going to have general entertainment. So you see how not only internal ambitions and plans have to react to market realities, but also how they can kind of uh, contrast and con and conflict with market realities. And it's very, very hard to nail down a status quo, a homeostasis that bridges both the internal hopes for your service and what the audience and, and consumers are telling you your service can or can't be. Yeah, no, that's a it's 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 an interesting way to to look at the differences between hopes and dreams and reality <laughs> for some of these services. But Hulu, I mean, Hulu remains the larger service, does it not, compared to Disney in, Plus? In America, yes. Yeah, in America, that's right, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I, so the, um, uh, another another really interesting little nugget in, in this report is the, uh, is a look at the percent of titles that uh, account for 50% of platform demand, yes. um, which I find, I find really interesting because it really gets at uh, a key point, which is how top heavy so many of these services are, you know, we, with, with, during the strike, there was all the talk about, we need, we need to really reward the series that, uh, overperform, you know, these series are making tons of money for the services and the actors aren't really seeing anything. So there were bonuses written into the contracts to reward shows that hit a certain viewing metric. But the simple fact of the matter is that most shows are not big hits on these services, right? I mean, like, I think the number for Netflix was like 8% uh, of new titles accounted for 50% of platform demand, right? I yeah. mean, like, what, what are, what are, what, so what, what are, the, what is actually driving the viewership, I guess, is, is the question. Yeah, I mean, even as entertainment has always been a hits-driven business where the home runs compensate for the strikeouts, you still want a somewhat more equal distribution of demand throughout an entire library. Again, especially for, for Netflix and Amazon that are spending tens of billions of dollars on, on programming. But it is tough. I think Netflix's engagement report that they released uh, and that they plan to release every six months is a really good example of how many titles are receiving very, very little viewership. And the reason why these streaming companies resisted uh, performance transparency for so long is because it would reveal, A, how much inefficient spending on programming is, go is going on based on what is driving viewership versus what's not. And B, it would kind of confuse the narrative that they were trying to craft for, for Wall Street and for public media. And we are starting to see that balance of transparency uh, even out a bit, and we're starting to realize what is happening. So, uh, you know, you, you look at any kind of in most in-demand TV show and movie uh, list that we put out at, you know, at the end of each year or, or most watched from Nielsen or most watched from Netflix. And you see, it's going to be a, a handful of kind of broad appeal originals like um, the, I believe it's uh, the Night Agent. Uh, mm -hmm. if, yeah. Yeah, if I'm, yeah. So Night Agent is their most watched uh, title for, for 2023, I believe. And that is in essence, like we talked about before, kind of an elevated serialized procedural. It is something you could have seen in another era on CBS with a few tweaks or, or on broadcast television with a few tweaks. 
And so you you see programs like that really breaking out. You see you see the kind of anchor series like Mandalorian and Stranger Things uh, breaking out, and then you see just a mountain of really easily rewatchable licensed programming, often with long libraries like Friends, like The Office, like uh, NCIS, like Supernatural. You know, shows with a hundred plus episodes that can be put on as background noise. I think uh, FX president John Landgraf has kind of consistently said and, and very recently said in the last year that roughly 80% of television is lean back. You know, that's laundry folding TV show, snackable TV show, things that you put on just to occupy time. And 20% is lean forward. You know, your Game of Thrones is your, your successions, uh, things like that. So when, when we look at the zoomed out landscape and what has happened over the last five, 10 years in which I believe uh, in 2022, 599 scripted English series aired across broadcast, cable, and streaming, which was a record. Just the, the, the expenditure on content budgets and the volume of programs we've been inundated with has been, unfortunately for companies, a massive overextension of their resources that didn't provide necessary ROI. For consumers, it's been great. We've been swimming in a sea of endless high-quality choice but that now is coming to an end. We will never have it as good as we did at around the end of 2022. I, I mean, I would, I would push back on that slightly. I don't think it's great for the consumer to have that many choices. They're too much, too much choice is just as bad as too little choice because you end up having <laughs> this fractured landscape where like 500 people are watching this great show and nobody else knows about it because there's just too much, there's too much stuff. I, I, yeah, I will say that we're seeing subscription fatigue and, and paralysis of choice when we log on to our streaming apps and don't know what to watch and we and we essentially scroll for 35 minutes before throwing friends on for the umpteenth time out of frustration. That is bad. But I think for, for fans of quality entertainment, having this much choice has been good because we never run out of good things to watch. And I think to your point, having a great show that 500 people watch Every time someone talks about that, my mind immediately goes to Rectify, which is, I think, one of the most underrated TV shows of the last 10 years, but also no one watched it whatsoever. It was very much a product of peak TV. I have no, I don't even know what that is. Rectify. Exactly. See, I've got, I got to write it there, Rectify, writing it down right now. All right. Uh, one last, one last question uh, was about licensing. You mentioned licensing a little bit uh, earlier and, and the, um, the shift back to uh, studios realizing that they cannot make money with their streaming services just by having these vast libraries that they need to sell them either to Netflix or to other com com competitors to generate a little revenue. Uh, how is that going to change um, how how the streaming uh, wars look, yeah, for lack of a better word? Because I, I, I do think that... Uh, I, 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 I Just yesterday, I saw somebody saying... Paramount Plus doesn't have all of the Star Trek movies. Well, what's the deal with that? Why, 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 why can't I, I subscribe to Paramount Plus? I should have access to them all the time. And I'm just like, that's not how it works. That's not how it's ever worked. Right. That's like that is not how licensing has ever really worked. But I, I do think that I, I guess my question here is, I, I think that smarter consumers look at like a Warner Brothers title and they say this should be on HBO Max because this is part of the Warner Empire. Or they look at a Paramount Studios movie and they're like, why isn't this Paramount movie here? I subscribe to the Paramount streaming service. I should have access to it. Uh, I, I think those people are going to start getting confused and frustrated while the general 
population is going to be like, well, it's where it, it, it is where it is. What's where is it on Just Watch? Like, right. what, what, you know, I, I think the fragmentation of entertainment has absolutely been frustrating as the streaming industry has matured. You know, early on when it was really just Netflix, Hulu and Amazon, it was pretty easy to find whatever you wanted whenever you wanted without much difficulty. Now that everybody has a streaming service, now that titles hop around from Netflix to Max to this, it is a little bit more difficult. But what we're seeing too, uh, particularly when it comes to Netflix, is uh, co-exclusive or non-exclusive licensing where a title is available on both Netflix and Max or on both you know Paramount Plus and Netflix. That is actually punching way above its weight. It doesn't make up a significant percentage of Netflix's library supply, but it does make up nearly, I, I, I think, an identical percentage of its demand to exclusively licensed uh, series on Netflix. And I think having multiple uh, uh, options, multiple viewing options, really just increases a show's total addressable market. It, it's really good for raising kind of the brand profile. And to your point, it's never how it's worked where we, we have a show, a Netflix original, right? And let's just say it runs two, three seasons, solid show, then ends because the viewership wasn't there. Well, now it just sits on the digital shelves gathering dust on Netflix. And that is an inefficient use of resources if it's not really generating a ton of continued viewership and engagement on Netflix. For decades, syndication was the absolute best model for TV. Talking about windowing with, with movies, same thing with TV. You know, Seinfeld ran, it, it hit that magic kind of 100 episode number, started running on, on TBS and, and other networks, and more people discovered it. And it was almost this wonderful feedback loop in which it helped the, the ongoing seasons attract more of an audience, and it helped the long tail monetization uh, opportunity for the rights holder, Sony. So it is very strange that we have become accustomed and frustrated to shows only being in one place, although I understand it from a kind of consumer convenience standpoint. But yes, we are going to continue seeing more licensing. Shows will be popping up on multiple services. And I think in 2024, non-exclusive licensing, you know, co-exclusive, where, where two, two or three platforms have access to the same show is going to become even more prevalent. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like and this is one thing I love about. Uh, so I have an Apple TV and uh, it is extremely convenient for when I want to watch a, a thing and I'm not sure what it's on. Right. I just go to the search and I look for, you know, where is where's Mad Max Fury Road playing right now? And it will tell me, except for Netflix. I don't think it works with Netflix, which Netflix and Apple have some uh, technology beef. They have they are they are not sharing their data. They don't they don't <laughs> want anyone anyone. But but it's uh but it's 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 fairly convenient and I do think that is the next step is basically once again recreating the cable TV experience where you go to your guide, you hit right. the guide button on your TV and it pops up with the, you know, tiered list of shows and you scroll through it. We're just going back. We're going we we have to return um to the to the past uh all right I, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything i should have asked if there's anything you think folks should know about about the report uh the new report or streaming in general something i forgot to ask or did not know to ask what should the folks know as a former reporter i love that question that's always a a good one you know i, I think i would just say back to our, our a little bit of our discuss our, our pushback I, I think you're right in the sense that too much choice can be overwhelming and that 
At the end of the day, cost and convenience are major factors in deciding the winners, plural, of the streaming wars. But I do think we are losing something, sadly, with this uh, retraction and contraction of the industry. We're not going to see 600 shows uh, ever again, probably. It makes sense from a financial standpoint from these companies. But it is sad that something as niche but wonderful as Rectify or, or other smaller but beloved shows won't have as much of a chance to break through the clutter or even get made. You know, we, we are entering a period where a lot of these networks and streamers are going to be focusing on broad appeal, and that isn't as creatively daring. It doesn't mean there's not going to be good TV. HBO and Apple TV Plus will still be pumping out premium shows. But I do think for the next few years, there might be a a bit of a disappointing middle ground for people who love really boundary thought pushing entertainment. And I think that's, we, we lose something in that, but Hey, entertainment in a lot of ways is cyclical. So perhaps we'll, we'll get back through that in five years. We'll be back to pumping out, you know, white lotuses left and right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 well, I, it's interesting again, thinking about Apple, I do think Apple is, is trying to fill that kind of, HBO niche from yeah. the from the late '90s, early aughts, where they have uh, lesser viewed but very very highly respected uh, shows. Um, and again, I again, I get I, it from a business standpoint. Don't, yeah, you know, don't get me wrong. It's the analyst in me and like the former critic in me that are always doing battle. Yeah, no, I mean that is that is the difficulty is trying to figure out what what is actually happening in the industry versus what you want to happen in the industry. Exactly. Those are two two different things. All right. Uh, Thank you very much for being on the show, Brandon. I really appreciate it. Again, the, the name of the report is uh, The Parrot Perspective, Unraveling the Myth of a Winner-Takes-All Streaming War. Um, I, I will link to it in the email. You should click it. It's, it's, it's really interesting stuff, um, and uh, I, hope you, I hope you check it out. Uh, thanks, Brandon, for being on. Thank you for having me, man. Much appreciated. Uh, my name, again, is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, uh, and I'll be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then. Bye.